Isaiah chapter 8. Before we get to the text, are there, are there prayer requests, prayer concerns, anything, uh, anybody's heart, anything going on today? Great news, yep, yep. Mm, yes, yeah. All right, any any others? All right, let's let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful that we can meet together tonight, Lord, and we just thank you for your your grace and your kindness, Lord, and thank you that we can uh, uh, overcome adversity and discomfort to uh, meet together around your word and to, uh, to study and worship. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to put the distractions out of our mind and to uh, focus our attention on your word and your truth and, Lord, uh, how we might walk in your ways and walk in your truth, Lord. And we just thank you for the answered prayers for baby Ezekiel and just thank you for the good news and the good report. And we continue to pray for the family and that you grant them them grace and Lord we um, pray that as we open your word that your spirit would teach us and help us to uh, uh, understand the truth and walk in truth Lord and to believe your truth and thank you that you have spoken through your word and through your son Christ Jesus in whose name we pray amen all right so we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 8 Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mer Shalahashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jerobachiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mer Shalahashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so here we, we have another message that God delivers to King Ahaz through the prophet Jer uh, Isaiah, and he delivers it in two vivid ways through a billboard. Uh, a large scroll with the words written on it and also the name of a, of a son. And so let's remind ourselves as we come to this text, uh, at, at this time in history, who is the world's superpower? Assyria, all right? And what is the immediate threat that uh, Jerusalem is facing now? Yes, so, so Syria and Israel uh, have formed an alliance against the king of Assyria, and they wanted Judah and Jerusalem to join their alliance. And King Ahaz didn't want to join the alliance, and so Israel and Syria invaded Judah uh, and laid siege to Jerusalem. The initial assault was very successful, killing uh, uh, over 100,000 Judean soldiers taking 200,000 captive 
uh, into Samaria and Damascus. And so the initial assault was very successful. And then they laid siege to Jerusalem. So the, the attack kind of died down. They were not able to conquer the city. They weren't able to take Jerusalem. So they laid siege to it. And then that's when God sent Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, to deliver the message that their conspiracy against him will not succeed. Jerusalem will not fall. He will not be removed from the throne. Uh, he is the son of David, and he will stay on the throne in Jerusalem. And so he has Isaiah has delivered the message to Ahaz that Assyria that Syria and, and Israel will not conquer Jerusalem. And God offered to guarantee his word to Ahaz. He, asked, uh, he told Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ahaz could ask for anything that he wanted uh, to confirm God's word to him. And, uh, you know, on Sunday, we talk, or a couple Sundays ago, we talked about Zacharias in the temple uh, asking for a sign. How shall I know this is true? And the Lord... Uh, uh, judged him, said he would not be able to speak until John the Baptist was born. Um, and, uh, and yet, God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Uh, and how does Ahaz respond to that, uh, to that request? Yeah, he refuses. And he, he couches his refusal in spiritual sounding language. You know, no, I'm, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to, uh, to, to challenge him. Uh, and, and as we looked at that text, in reality, we saw that Ahaz really didn't want to hear a word from the Lord. He wasn't interested in confirmation. He had already decided on the course of action that he wanted to take. Uh, he had decided that he was going to reach out to the king of Assyria uh, to come and assist him in defeating these two kings instead of relying on the Lord, uh, relying on the Lord's deliverance, uh, destruction of Israel and Samaria. And so he, uh, he would not ask for a sign. He'd already decided what he would do. He would appeal to the king of Assyria to help him. And this will turn out to be a disastrous choice, as we'll see at the end of this chapter, um, uh, that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Um, and so, uh, so it's going to turn out to be a bad choice. But then we saw that God, even though Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, God gave a sign, but a sign that would be fulfilled hundreds of years in the future. Ahaz would not see the fulfillment of that sign. He will be long gone before uh, the sign of Emmanuel comes. Isaiah told him that, uh, uh, that uh, the, the virgin would conceive and she would give birth to a child and his name would be called Emmanuel. And before that child grew to, to, knew, to know right from wrong that both of those kings would be gone, their land would be forsaken by their kings, and that sign was hundreds of years in the future, and we see it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him uh, that Mary is going to give birth to a son. He tells Joseph that she will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, and this is to fulfill the word that came from the prophet uh, that he will be Emmanuel. Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so he gives a sign way off in the future that Ahaz will not see, 
But now in chapter 8, he gets a sign for the immediate threat, a sign that Ahaz will see, that will come to pass in his lifetime and in his, uh, and in his, uh, his time. And so, uh, so um, he promises a sign for the immediate crisis. And that sign is Mer Shalah Hashbaz. And that sign is going to be delivered in two different ways. And that word means a uh, speed to the plunder, hasten to the spoils. All right, so if, you're, if your daddy's a prophet, you might end up with a very strange name. <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, um, speed to the plunder, hasten to the spoils. So what, what is plunder? Yeah, so, so when, a, when an army goes in and conquers a land, they plunder the land. They take everything that is of value, everything that they need. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of soldiers. They need to eat. They need equipment. They take the things from the land. They plunder. They take all the riches of the, of the conquered people and use it for their army or ship it back home to their people. And so uh, plunder are, is, uh, you know, those things of value that are taken by a defeated spoil so so plunder and then hasten to the spoils spoils are are those things of value plunder is the act of taking the things spoils are the things that are that are taken so anything of value everything of value uh, this this enemy is going to come and take away those uh, those those things of value and the picture is of a a uh, a a a, a uh, a fast enemy, a, uh, uh, a conquering army that comes in that takes away the things of value from this land. And so uh, he, he delivers this message, and he delivers this message in two ways. The first, verse 1, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mer Shalahashbaz. And so think of a billboard a large scroll a large sign and he takes the pen and he writes the words on this large scroll on this large sign a large sign that has these four words on it speed to the plunder hasten to the spoils and he is going to write this message on a large scroll and deliver it to the king deliver it to king ahaz and he's going to deliver it by two of Ahaz's close advisors, trusted advisors. And so Isaiah is told to take a large scroll, write on it with a man's pen concerning Mer Shalahashbaz, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrekiah. And so how many witnesses in the Old Covenant does it take to establish a fact, to establish something to be true? Two witnesses. So he's going to, to write this message and deliver it to the king by two of his trusted advisors. And he calls these men faithful witnesses. But then when we, uh, when we look at these, these two men, these two close advisors, well, one of them, it, we know uh, a little bit about Uriah the priest. We meet him over in 1 Kings chapter 16. You remember when we started this section, uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, 
We talked about the historical context in 1 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles. uh, uh, talks about the reign of Ahaz. We meet Uriah the priest. And Uriah the priest, he's a priest, but he is not a servant of the Lord. He is not uh, uh, committed to uh, God's truth and God's covenant and God's standards. He is a servant of Ahaz. And after the fall of Damascus, after this prophecy comes to pass uh, and Damascus is conquered, which is the capital of Syria, Ahaz traveled to Damascus to meet with the king of Assyria. Remember his course of action. He's not going to trust the Lord for his deliverance. He's going to turn to the king of Assyria. And when the Syrian and Israeli armies are defeated, when Damascus falls, Ahaz goes to Damascus to meet with the king of Assyria. And when he's there, when he's in Damascus, he sees an altar that the king of Assyria has built to his god in Damascus. Uh, And uh, Ahaz believes that that Assyrian god conquered Damascus, conquered Syria, conquered Samaria, conquered Israel. And so he gets Uriah the priest to come to Damascus to look at that altar and to reverse engineer it, to see the altar, to get plans and get a design, and then come back to Jerusalem and erect an altar just like that. You know, so he thinks that the king of Assyria has given this great victory, and so he has the priest come and construct an altar to the gods of Assyria in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and Uriah, the priest, did exactly as the king said. And uh, Uriah built one just like it in Jerusalem, and then all of the offerings and sacrifices of the Jewish people were offered on this new altar and not the altar uh, to the Lord that was in front of the temple that God commanded be built. And so Uriah is not a good guy. He is not an effective priest. He is not a servant of the Lord. He is not upholding God's covenant. He is uh, a servant of Ahaz doing what Ahaz tells him to do, even if it goes against the word of the Lord. And yet Isaiah gives the message to him as one of the faithful witnesses to deliver God's word to to the king. Uh, He's not a good guy. He's not an effective priest. He is effectively the king's yes man. Whatever the king says, that's what he will do. And so he's there to serve the king and not serve the Lord. So that's the first one, Uriah the priest. The second uh, witness is Zechariah, the son of Jebrekiah. And we don't know anything about this... uh, Zechariah, this is not the same Zechariah that is a minor prophet that has a book uh, by his name. That Zechariah lived uh, hundreds of years later after the exile and wrote during the time of Haggai after the exile. And Zechariah is actually a very, a very common name in the, in the Old Covenant, in the Scripture. And so uh, this, this uh, Zechariah, we don't know anything about him except for that he is mentioned here. And, uh, and it's a very common Old Testament name. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And uh, uh, similar to the name Zacharias uh, that we've been talking about on Sunday morning. 
And, uh, uh, and so really that's all we know. And so Isaiah calls these two men faithful witnesses. They deliver God's word to the king, two witnesses taking this message, hasten to the spoil, uh, uh, speed to the, to the plunder. He takes this message to the king. And, uh, uh, and they can deliver the message. It's been written on a scroll. All their role is is to deliver the message, to deliver the sign, the billboard that has been written uh, by, by Isaiah. All they have to do is show him what is written. And so this message is delivered to the king two ways. The first, a written message delivered by two of his trusted advisors. And then the second way, what is the second way that this message will be delivered? Yeah, so the prophetic name of a baby. And that's actually a theme of this section of, of, uh, of Isaiah. Remember we met Sher Jeshub back in chapter 7, which means a remnant will return. When Isaiah went to meet Ahaz, when he was inspecting the water supply, when the city was under, under, under siege, uh, Isaiah went with his son, Sher Jeshub, which uh, is uh, a message of judgment. God's wrath is going to come upon the city, but a remnant will return. So it's also a message of mercy and grace. So, so uh, judgment is going to come, and yet God will preserve a remnant to himself. We talked about the, the name Emmanuel. God will send the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. And now we have another prophetic name, Mer Shalahashbaz. We should call him MSHB. And <laughs> it's kind of easier to say, so maybe from now on I'll call him MSHB. And y'all know, hasten to the spoils, speed to the plunder. Uh, and so, uh, so he has this prophetic name, which is a, a theme uh, in this part of Isaiah. A lot of prophetic names here. And notice what he says, uh, verse 3, I went to the prophetess, and we'll come back there for a moment, in, in a minute. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, Mershal Hashbeth, M-S-H-B. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. All right, so there's the message. What... Uh, what are the first words a, a, a child usually says? What? Yeah, dad, dad first, <laughs> and, then, and then mama. And, and mama is always trying to get the baby to say mama, but the baby always says dad, dad. I think it's easier to say. <laughs> but, uh, and so, so how long would that be? She's going to conceive, so we got nine months, and then within a year, year and a half, that baby would be able to say mama or dada. And so within two years, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. The riches of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, will be taken away before the king of Assyria. All right, so again, he is, he's confirming the message, giving a sign, even though Ahaz didn't ask for it, that Syria is going to fall. The capital city of Damascus, the riches there are going to be taken away. Israel is going to fall before the king of Assyria. And all the spoils of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, will be taken away in a period of about two years. 
And so the sign of Emmanuel is hundreds of years in the future, a sign to the house of David, but this sign is more immediate. It is a sign given to Ahaz that he will see, that he will experience a, a promise that uh, God is making and that Ahaz should not put his trust in the king of Assyria. He should put his trust in the Lord because God will provide the deliverance. And next week we will see the disaster that happens to the rest of Judah. Jerusalem's not going to fall, but Judah will be ravaged because of the king's choice to reach out to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria doesn't help him. The king of Assyria continues the attack, and he himself comes and lays siege on Jerusalem. And we will see that prophecy played out here later in the book of, uh, of uh, Isaiah. So before this boy can say his first words, Mama or Dada, the kingdom of Syria and its capital city of Damascus will have fallen to Assyria. Damascus will have been plundered, and the same is true of Israel. Both nations will have been defeated, and all their riches and all their goods will be taken away by this Syrian army. And so God has given the house of David a sign. And so that's, that's the immediate meaning of this text. God confirms his word to Ahaz that Israel and Syria, their attack, their conspiracy against him will not succeed. Jerusalem will not be conquered. He will not be removed from the throne and somebody else installed that will join their, their alliance. Their mission will fail and their cities, their capitals will fall, their nations will fall and the plunder will be taken away. So that's the, that's the meaning of the text. That's the immediate meaning of the text. God confirms his word. We need to trust in God and not military and political power for our rescue, for our deliverance. But there's something else that, uh, that I'd like to talk about, something that's very much a topic of discussion today, and that is uh, the first phrase of verse 3, then I went into the prophetess. Um, some today take this verse and use it with some other verses and try to, uh, uh, to, 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 to there's, there's an issue very much discussed in our day, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that is the issue of women pastors, women in leadership of churches. And some people will take this word and this passage and some others and, uh, uh, and talk about uh, women's roles in the church, you know. And so one of the questions that is a, it's a defining moment in the Southern Baptist Convention um, we talked about in New Orleans this year, passed a, a constitutional amendment to, to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. You cannot have a woman, you cannot call a woman to serve as pastor in any capacity in your church. And that uh, in order to amend the, the Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention, the amendment must be voted on by two-thirds of the messengers and two consecutive conventions and so that will be voted on again in Indianapolis next summer in June of uh, 2024 and so this is a topic that we are in the middle of Southern Baptist as discussing and determining friendly cooperation based on uh, uh, the role of women in the leadership of the church and so uh, some who advocate women serving as pastors will 
turn to verses like this where it shows that women were prophetesses. <laughs> and so, uh, well, what is a prophet? All right, so a prophet is one who speaks forth the, the word. God's spokesman, somebody who receives direct revelation from God and delivers that revelation. Isaiah is a prophet. He received a word from the Lord, um, MSHB, and he wrote it on the, the, uh, the, the tablet, uh, the paper, the scroll, delivered it to the king. He went to the king. He told them the sign of Emmanuel. He told them that uh, uh, the, the, the mission the, of Syria and Israel, that was going to fail. And so he is receiving direct revelation from God. He is faithfully delivering it to the king, to the people. Isaiah is a prophet receiving a direct revelation from God. God's spokesman proclaiming words he receives directly from God, speaking for God. And so prophetess is the feminine form of, of, uh, of that word. Words have gender. People have sex, biological sex. Words have gender, and some people today confuse those two things. <laughs> but uh, the word prophetess is the feminine form of prophet. And so what would that word mean? If prophet is a God's spokesman, a prophetess would be God's spokeswoman. <laughs> All right, so a female who receives direct revelation from God and then delivers that direct revelation exactly as it was received uh, would be the, the simple definition of the word. A woman who proclaims a word that she just receives directly from God. Now, this particular passage, we'll talk about some others in a minute. This particular passage could be understood a couple of ways. All right, so what, what is Isaiah's topic, uh, title? Uh, he's a prophet. All right, so it's very possible that Isaiah's wife could be called the prophetess simply because she is Mrs. Prophet. <laughs> you know, she is Isaiah's wife. He is a prophet. She is his wife, and so it could, it could just be say, saying, you know, I went into the prophet's wife, I went into the prophetess. He could be simply speaking that way, you know, that, uh, that uh, the, the pastor's, the prophet's wife. That's a possibility that he could be using that term that way. A second way that he could be using that term is the fact that by bearing this child with a prophetic name, she is bringing forth God's word. You know, this child has a prophetic name. Hasten to the spoils, speed to the plunder. Before this child is two years old, these two cities, these two nations will be destroyed and all their riches will have been taken away. And so it could be that that's the message that she is bearing that message from the Lord by bearing the child and giving the prophetic name as God received. That's a possibility. And then the third possibility could be that Isaiah's wife also had the prophetic gift, that God was speaking directly through her, giving her direct revelation, and, and uh, during this time of crisis for the nation, giving her words to speak on God's behalf, for God. That is, a, that is a possibility. But it is also true 
that there is no other ev no evidence. We don't have a record of any message that she received and that she delivered. Uh, it, it doesn't refer to her in the ongoing prophetic office. And so three ways that we can understand this. It's just simply Mrs. Prophet or she's bearing this child that has this prophetic name that is a message from the Lord or she has the ongoing gift of prophecy, uh, which would not necessarily be, it would be unusual, but it would not be unique. Because in the Bible, we do read of other prophetesses. So whatever position we take regarding Isaiah's wife in, in chapter 8, verse 3, there are, in fact, women who are specifically called prophetesses in the Scripture, and we do have words that they received from God and they spoke. Anybody know of any? Deborah, okay. Deborah in Judges, uh, Judges chapter 4, is a prophetess. She receives a word from the Lord, and she is also the only woman to serve as a, as a judge. All right? And we do also see that, that the fact that she's a prophetess and that she serves as a judge is an indictment on the weakness of the men. Uh, Barak was, was weak and cowardly and would not stand and lead the people. And so God raised up Deborah, and Deborah said, this is God's wrath upon you, and a woman's going to deliver the people because the men are, aren't doing the thing. And so the woman was sucked into the vacuum of leadership left by the men. And so that was part of God's judgment on Barak and his weakness. So Deborah is one. Is there another? Um, now, Hannah, like, uh, like Mrs. Isaiah, um, you know, bore a child that was filled with the Spirit from his womb, a Nazarite from... But, but we, don't, we don't see any direct revelation, and she's not called a prophetess. She's not given that title. But Miriam, Moses' sister, in Exodus 15, she is called a prophetess, and she receives a song. Direct revelation from God, the song of Miriam in Exodus 15, singing praise to God after they had come from the Red Sea. And so Miriam is called a prophetess in Exodus chapter 15, and we do have a record of her prophecy, what she received from the Lord, a song of worship, a song of praise that they sang after they came through the, uh, the Red Sea. All right, there's another Anna in the New Testament. We'll get to the New Testament in a minute. And so in the Old Testament, there's one more um, called Hulda, H-U-L-D-A-H, Hulda. And she prophesied during the time of Josiah. And the time of Josiah was a time of renewal, a time of revival. And she, you remember, Josiah was a very young man when he became king. And Hulda, and we actually have the... Uh, a record of the prophecy that she delivered to the king, and they recognized the king, Josiah, and his servants, the priests, they recognized Hulda as bringing them a word from the Lord during that time of renewal, during that time of revival. If you want to read her prophecy, it's 2 uh, Kings 22, 14, 2 Chronicles 34, we see the prophecy of Hulda. And so in all the Old Testament, we have these three women, or, or four if you count Isaiah's wife, uh, that are called prophetesses. And, we, and, and so in, in 2,000 years of Old Testament history, we have three or four women with this 
gift. So it's very unusual, it's very unique, and these are women that God used in a, in a specific way at a specific time. Now, Nehemiah also mentions a false prophetess. And so there is a, a woman named Noadiah who delivers a false prophecy to try to discourage Nehemiah and the other people from the building of the wall. So she joins in with Sambad and Tobiah, the people who are opposing the building, and so he calls out a false prophetess by name. So, uh, so that's in the Old Testament. We have Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and maybe Isaiah, maybe Mrs. Isaiah um, as, as prophetess. And then the New Testament, and we'll see her in a little bit in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2. Uh, sometime this year we'll see uh, Anna <laughs> in uh, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. She is a prophetess. She is in the temple she prophesies about the Lord Jesus when, uh, when, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple for their obligation. So Anna is called the prophetess. And then in the book of Acts, not too long ago, in Acts 21, we met four virgin daughters of Philip that prophesied. And Philip was one of the seven in Acts 6 that was set apart to wait tables, uh, maybe the, the first office of deacon, one of the first deacons, but Philip was also an evangelist, um, evangelizing, you know, being part of the awakening in Samaria, evangelizing the uh, Ethiopian eunuch on the, on the tray. He had four daughters, four virgin daughters that prophesied in uh, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. And so, 6,000 years of biblical history, we have about six women or four at one time you know six references to women serving as prophetesses. and so there are those today who point to those passages and say because God called prophets in the past there's no reason that we should not let women serve as the office of pastor elder overseer in a church God called prophetesses and he spoke through women to men they received their messages as a word from the Lord and so there's no reason that we should exclude women from the office of pastor some would use that argument they would use this word to to make that argument so what are we to do with that with that argument well remember we believe in sola scriptura right we believe in that james talked about it last week you know bible interprets bible we will use clear passages to help us understand more obscure passages and, and so if a passage specifically addresses an issue we will help that interpret a Bible that might just simply reference an issue or use a word. All right, so we're going to use the clear passages to help us understand the more obscure passages or the less clear or where there's just a, a passing reference. We'll use a passage that specifically teaches on that event as, as determinative to help us make a decision what we do with that. And so does the fact that God called prophetesses that he delivered his word to them, that they spoke God's word to men, and men received that as a word from God, does that mean that women can serve as pastors, elders, overseers in the local church? Well, let's answer that with clear passages. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers. And I believe that, a, that word and should be pastor-teachers goes together. All right, so a prophet is not a pastor. An apostle is not, a, not an evangelist. An evangelist is not a prophet. Prophet's not a pastor, an apostle's not a pastor, evangelist's not a pastor. There's, those offices are listed separately. All right, so a prophet is not a pastor. There's a clear distinction that Paul makes. Some are prophets, some are pastor teachers. They're not the same thing. They're not the, the same office. And so the women who were, uh, uh, who were chosen by God selected by him at a certain time and in a certain place to serve him in a special way to deliver a, a certain message from him um, were prophets. But the prophet is not the same thing as a pastor. The pastor is an officer in the New Testament church. The New Testament church? That's, well, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> so so that's, that's good. No, that's exactly right. And so... so Prophet and pastor is not the same thing. And so just because God told, called prophetesses does not mean that women can be pastors. They're not the same thing. There is a distinction, and Paul makes that distinction in this list. Those women were chosen by God, selected by him, gifted by him, given a message by him to deliver to his people at a certain place and a certain time, and they did that with faithfulness and with courage and with uh, uh, uh with, with, with leadership, they faithfully delivered the message that God gave to them at the time and place God gave it to them. They were a prophet in their time and their place, but a pastor is an officer in a New Testament church. And pastors do not receive direct revelation from God today. Pastors explain and teach and exhort from what God has already said, to which nothing is to be added. All right, so God is not giving new revelation. And so pastors don't receive revelation from God. They exhort, they expound, they explain, they apply, they teach what God has already said. And in the book of Revelation, he says, don't add to it and don't take away from it. So there aren't people receiving direct revelation from God. The pastor leads... He cares for, he feeds, and he protects the sheep that are entrusted to him. And that is not the same thing that a prophet, that's not the role of a prophet. The role of pastor is different. Leading, feeding, caring, protecting. That's what a pastor does. That's the role of a pastor. Prophet delivers direct revelation from God, period. So they're not the same thing. So just because somebody was called to be a prophet does not mean that they're a pastor. And in fact, it, they're not. Two separate offices. And, uh, and, and so the New Testament pastor teaches from the Word of God that's already been revealed. And I believe that the gift of prophecy ceased at the end of the age of the apostles with the closing of the canon of the New Testament. There were prophets, there were female prophets in the book of Acts in that time in the apostolic age. You remember when we got to the end of Acts, what we saw? We saw the ending of an era, the ending of the apostolic era. Even Paul, 
You know, even Paul could, wasn't healing at the end of that, and at the end of his ministry, he left uh, uh, whoever it was uh, sick, <laughs> couldn't heal him anymore, didn't heal him anymore, and, uh, and the prophecy ended, and now through the church, God has the word, and pastors preach, teach the revealed word of God that's in the Bible. And so the fact that there were female prophets is irrelevant to the discussion of whether or not women should serve as pastors. Deborah did. Yep. And and hold the hold the also, you know, but but that authority was because they were receiving direct revelation from God. It was not an, an authority by virtue of their office where they were set apart, ordained as a pastor, has authority, has leadership by virtue of being set apart, called by God as an overseer, elder, pastor, called by God, gifted by God to lead the people of God. And so that's different. Yes, sir. And then if you want... The most clear statement, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, we use the clear to help us understand the obscure. So we've established clearly that the office of prophet, the office of pastor are not the same thing. He mentions four different gifts, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastor teachers. And then in 1 Timothy 2.12, if you want the uh, clear statement to help us understand the illusion in verse 3 or the uh, uh, yeah the illusion not illusion <laughs> but alluding to a prophetess in, in chapter 8 verse 3 1 Timothy 2.12 Paul says and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence alright can you get any more clear than that <laughs> alright so what is the clear teaching Paul does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, which would mean, which would forbid the woman from serving in the office of pastor, overseer, elder, because that is a position of authority. Yep, that's the next thing I was going to point out. Exactly right, Tommy. That's exactly right. And so, uh, and, and so those who advocate female pastors say, well, oh, Paul was only talking about Ephesus. And he's only talking about Ephesus in the first century in a patriarchal society and when they have this temple to Aphrodite and, and he's, he's just talking about that one church at that one time at that one place. But what, what does Paul, Paul doesn't point to anything cultural. What does he point to? Adam and Eve, creation, the Garden of Eden. And so his justification is not temporary, it's not cultural, it's not limited to a location. He doesn't say, I don't permit women in Ephesus to teach or have authority over men. I don't, I don't permit first century women to teach or have authority over men. He goes back to creation. So God's order in creation and also the order of the fall. All right, so both of those things are a view here. What does he say? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So it goes back to creation, the order of creation. Adam was formed first. Adam was created to be the leader. He was created to be the prophet. He was created to be the protector. He was created 
And, and we, we know because God's law was given to Adam before Eve was created. And so we see God demonstrated. How did Eve hear the law? The only way she heard the law was Adam spoke it to her. Adam taught her. And Adam did not teach her well, <laughs> but, uh, but he, 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 Adam was the first legalist. He added to what God said. He was the first one to add to God's word. God said, don't eat from it. Adam added, don't even touch it. <laughs> you know, so he was the first legalist requiring what God did not require. And uh, the result was disaster. But the clear order of creation, and, and that's what Paul justifies. He, so this is something that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's not temporary. It's not local. It's not cultural. It is universal. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to creation, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So those who say, those who say, oh, this is just that, um, they, uh, they, uh, you know, don't look at, at the justification. And then also the order of the fall. Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived. Adam was just flat out disobedient. He wasn't tricked. He was just rebellious. But Eve was deceived. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so the, the justification, the, the authority behind Paul's statement, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, goes all the way back to the order of creation. Adam was created first and the order of the fall. The woman was deceived and she fell. So those are the justifications, those are the reasons, and it's not saying that a woman is any less, it's just God's order, God's design. And, verse 15, the woman should find fulfillment and completion in the roles that God has assigned to her and not seek out the roles that God has given to the man. And that's what he means by, nevertheless you will be saved, not, you know, not saved by childbearing but make complete reach fulfillment find her her uh, her fulfillment in childbearing if she continues in faith love holiness with self-control so a woman should find fulfillment in the roles that God has and can and will find fulfillment in the roles that God has assigned to her instead of usurping the roles that have been assigned to men that's what Paul says so that's how we answer those, those folks. And so, uh, so whatever Isaiah's wife being called a prophetess means in Isaiah 8.3, it cannot be used as a justification for women serving in the office of pastor. And the Baptist Faith and Message currently says... While both men and women are gifted for service in the local church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. All right, that's what the Baptist Faith and Message currently says. And the amendment before the convention in June is to amend the Constitution that in order to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, you cannot have a woman serve as pastor, elder, overseer uh, of any type, not just senior pastor, but that means youth pastor, worship pastor, children's pastor, 
uh, discipleship pastor, evangelism pastor, missions pastor. <laughs> a woman cannot serve a pastor of any of those roles, not just lead senior pastor. That's the, the amendment. And, and I believe that the, that the scripture's clear. Husband of one wife, yep. Right, exactly right. Yes, so so it's clear. And so that brings us back to Isaiah chapter 8. And, and we, we, we talked about that because that's a contemporary issue, but the, the, the point of the passage is God gives a sign to authenticate his word that Damascus and Samaria will fall. They will not be successful in conquering Jerusalem. They will not remove the son of David from the throne of, in, of, of, of Judah and Jerusalem. And so the lesson, and, and I think that whole discussion fits into this, God plainly delivered his message. He wrote it on a big billboard and had it delivered by two of his trusted advisors. He <laughs> named a child that. And told him by the by time that child is, is two or two years from now, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. The problem was not an absence of God's word. The problem was ignoring it, rejecting it, suppressing it. All right? Ahaz was clearly told, don't go to the king of Assyria. Trust in the Lord. But Ahaz was not interested in that message. He didn't want that message. He didn't want that message to authenticate it. He had decided what he was going to do. It didn't matter what God said. He was going to do what he was going to do. And there are people today who have a clear revelation from God and they want to do what they want to do. <laughs> the problem is not that God has not spoken. The problem is not that God's word is not clear. The problem is, is, is not an absence of truth. The problem is a suppression of truth, an ignoring of the truth, a rejection of the truth, and just the commitment that I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter what God says. The problem is a feeling of autonomy, self-government. I want to govern myself. I am going to do what I want to do. I'm going to make uh, my decisions, and I'm going to do what I feel like will be best for me, make me more comfortable, make me more happy, or maybe even reach more people. Uh, if we be more inclusive, then, uh, then we can reach more people, and I feel like it's going to be pragmatic or practical to have a woman pastor or to let, or to, to, to let women serve as, as pastors. God has spoken. He has spoken clearly. He has spoken in a way that is authoritative and unmistakably. Isaiah delivers the message to the king, and yet the king knows what he wants to do, and what God said does not matter to him. The problem is not an absence of truth. The problem is a suppression of the truth, a twisting of the truth, or the ignoring of the truth, or just outright rejection of the truth. People today know what they want to do. They want to be autonomous. They want to make their own rules. We want to make our own rules. We want to do what will work for us. And Ahaz is going to find out that that's disastrous. The next, next part of chapter 8, we'll see that. You know, Ahaz is going to find out that, that was a bad choice. <laughs> you should have listened to the Lord and not reached out to the king of Assyria. And uh, you're going to 
pay for it. And, and when we try to be autonomous, we make our own decisions independent of the Word of God, we too will find out the results are disastrous. And every church, every denomination that has embraced female pastors, they're not growing. And in fact, they have embraced a whole lot of other things. Because the same way of interpreting the Bible that can get you to a female pastor can get you to homosexual marriage, all these other things that these denominations are embracing. And they thought it would bring the people in. Oh, we're so kind and we're so tolerant, we're so inclusive and we're so equal. They're not growing. They're dying. And the denominations that are growing are the ones that are standing fast, standing firm on God's word. And, and so Ahaz is going to find out it's disastrous, and people uh, today are going to find out that it doesn't work. We need to go with the, the, the word of God. Autonomy, self-government, is disastrous. Adam and Eve wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to govern themselves. We wanted to be autonomous. We wanted to govern ourselves, and we fell into a condition of sin and misery. But uh, God, in his great love, sent his son into the world to save us out of the mess that we've made for ourselves and our autonomy, to save us from our sin, to save us from the consequences. Jesus took the penalty in our place, and God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. And God calls us not to be autonomous, but to submit to the lordship of Christ Jesus. And to know that his law is clear and it's good. We're not saved by observing the law, but the law tells us what's pleasing to God. And when we've been born again as sons of God, uh, it tells us what pleasing, what's, the law tells us what's pleasing to our Father. And if we love him, we will do what he commands. We will do what he says is pleasing to him. We will not govern ourselves, but we will govern ourselves by the law of God, by the word of God that he has given to us. If we love him, we will obey his commandments. We will seek to know his word, believing that it is clear, that it is authoritative, and we will line our lives, our church, up under the word of God because we desire to do that which is pleasing in his sight. And we know he tells us that's how he's glorified and his people loving him and living according to the word he's revealed. All right, questions about all of that. <laughs> the title tonight, Deborah, is I Went Into the Prophetess. <laughs> Since we didn't write it on the board. Yeah, but. <laughs> I have an opinion on that, too. <laughs> 